Bienvenidos al desvío. Encountering challenges, making decisions, confronting struggles, and understanding the reasons for different positions are but a part of being engaged in our community's ability to discuss and make advances toward a more inclusive and fair society. However, there is no set formula to achieve these objectives. In an era where so much misinformation thrives, como Latinos, tenemos que estar informados. We must be informed. El Desvío, Many Roads, One Destination, presents its listeners with 30 minutes of thought-provoking discussions on the relevant issues we face. Hello, my name is Diane Harris, and I am Lachlos Communications and Policy Associate. Today we will discuss and learn about the labor violations that took place as Qatar, a country that lacks LGBT, women's, and labor rights, prepared to host this year's tournament. We will then speak to labor leaders to discuss the efforts that are taking place now as preparation ramps up for the 2026 FIFA World Cup in Canada, Mexico, and the United States. When this podcast comes out, we will be in the middle of the 2022 FIFA World Cup hosted by Qatar. But let's go back. In 2010, Qatar won the bid to host the tournament, which was heavily criticized because of human right and labor right concerns. Over the last 12 years, organizations like Amnesty International have reported on the harsh labor conditions for workers, and outlets have reported that over 6,000 workers have died in preparation for this tournament. For those who may not know, what did the labor conditions entail? Thank you so much for having me today. And it's a pleasure to discuss the work that we have been doing for the past 10 years and the lead to the upcoming World Cup in Qatar. As you said, I think from the beginning, Amnesty International back in 2012, just a year after FIFA awarded Qatar the right to host this World Cup, we saw in this an opportunity to raise the alarm on the serious labor conditions or the potential human rights violations that will be linked to the World Cup because of the labor system in place in the country. And the reality being that Qatar did not have the infrastructure needed to host this mega sporting event from the stadiums to the roads, to the airport, to the metro. So you just needed to build a whole country, prepare it and build it in order to host this tournament. And knowing the demography of Qatar, we're thinking about a small country at the time, around 1.8 million residents in the country. Out of them, 95% are migrant workers coming from countries like India, Pakistan, Nepal, Philippines, coming to work in the country. And they really play a key part in every sector of the economy. So you see them in the construction, you see them in hospitals, you see them in the service sector, you see that everywhere. Any foreign national is governed by the system that we refer to as the kafala system or the sponsorship system, which basically tie any foreign national to their sponsor or their employer. And you can't enter the country unless you have the sponsor. Once in the country, you couldn't leave or change jobs unless you have the permission of your employee. So this is a problematic system that basically was a recipe for abuse and exploitation. And that's why we started raising the alarm very high. In terms of what were the practices at the time, so in order to come to Qatar, many low-skilled migrant workers, especially from Nepal, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they need to pay recruitment fees to their agency to buy these jobs in the Gulf and Qatar. And these, they paid around a thousand to three thousand US dollars to secure this job. And mind you, they come to work for jobs that do not pay more than two hundred dollars a month. And then they had also to take up recruitment fees and loans to pay these fees because they did not have this money, meaning that they arrived to the country already very vulnerable in desperate need for this job to repay their loan, but also support their families. So imagine you arrive in this situation and you are governed by this very problematic system. So 
the, the leverage that you have to say, okay, these are not the conditions that I were promised. I was promised more money. I was promised a day off, but you really can't leave this because first of all, you couldn't leave the country. Second of all, you can't change jobs. So you feel like you're trapped in this system. And that what kind of drives abuse, especially when we refer to forced labor abuses. Thank you so much for explaining that. You touched on this a bit. Qatar is a small nation, never hold the World Cup geographically, but even population-wise, it's pretty small. And there were so many abuses for the migrant workers with the Kafala system. Going on that, how was that system allowed? What systems were in place that let these labor violations occur? I think it's a system that existed years back. And I think the idea of it is just to control a little bit bit the labor market and ensure that foreign nationals that come to the country remain like guests in the country that do not, because staying in the country for many years, unlike many countries, when you have a job, you can eventually become a citizen of the country. But the Kafala system operates in a way that you always remain a guest in the country, a guest that is at risk of being kicked out of the country if your employer decides to cancel your ID. If they cancel your ID, you're just irregular in the country and at risk of arrest and deportation. You are perceived as a commodity in a way that you come in, you do the work, and then you send money back home, but then you know that you can't stay in the country. Eventually, once your work ends, you just have to go back to your home country to see your family. I think this is a system that also allowed for cheap labor to come into the country because people are desperate for jobs. They don't have jobs back in their home country. They were willing to pay the price for these jobs because they believe and they tell you when you sit with migrant workers. Remember one person from Nepal told me, I'm happy to come here and work even with all these conditions so that at least they can send some money back home to my kids, send them to a good school so they get an education and they don't have to go through what I'm going. Yes, some of them are paid and many did actually help their families eventually, but the system allows for these abuse to take place and ultimately the system not only allows them but also do not penalize abusive employers so for many years as an abusive employer you get away with exploiting the workforce you get away with not paying wages for your workforce for the workers you get away with making them work long hours without overtime you get away with cancelling arbitrarily the id and causing their deportation i think learning more about it it's tragic to learn about and several organizations such as Amazon International and the Human Rights Watch and the Labor Movement internationally, they have been bringing attention to these concerns for years. As the country kept preparing for the tournament, were there any labor protections that were put in place to try to improve the conditions? Yeah, I think we are just, we started this in 2012 and for at least eight years, they were a bit of state of denial from the Qatar authorities and even from FIFA who has a responsibility in all this. Minimizing the incidents. So many saying, no, these are isolated incidents. The system is not that abuse is not rampant, but our research showed that there is a pattern and widespread abuse caused by this very problematic system. But it took about eight years of relentless pressure, research, exposing the situation. Until the end of 2017, they finally agreed to sign an agreement with the International Labour Organization. It's the technical cooperation agreement where they said we commit to change the system. And this is the action plan that we're going to work on, including dismantling the system, working on wage protection, working on heat and safety and health issues for migrant workers. And that the initial step started in mid-2018, when increasingly within the next two years, 2018, 2020, they started to introduce some of these legal reforms. So today the situation is migrant workers can leave the country and can change jobs without the permission of their employers to key elements of this kafana system were, were taken away. However, employers can still 
file these absconding cases against you or cancel your ID residence permit arbitrarily, forcing your, you to leave the country and because you become irregular in the country. And even then, the enforcement and implementation remains very tricky because many employers still want these permission before they take you on board as a new employer. This has been a bit of an issue. They introduced a new minimum wage and non-discriminatory minimum wage, meaning all migrant workers are at least earning 250 US dollars per month. They introduced a new labor court for justice for migrant workers because wage theft, like, remain one of the major issues in Qatar. Workers will end up working for months without, with no pay. And they didn't have any active recourse to justice. So now at least they have these labor courts that will accelerate. If you are not paid, you take your case to court within a few weeks, supposedly on paper, you get your judgment. If your company does not pay you, they establish this support fund that will step in and pay the workers. So this looks very promising on paper. However, again, come the enforcement, we've seen that the cases take long to be resolved at these labor committee. We've also seen that the support fund initially wasn't operational, so they were paying, but they were not paying. Until recently, in the last few months, they really pumped a lot of money into it and more workers are receiving their wages. However, the issue remains that this is very limited to one year in time. It doesn't go back to years of abuses. And that's where our campaign and calls come from to ensure that all historic abuses are remedied. As you said, that progress happens after they've already been impacted, which is so unfair. But now it's that question about and how that can be carried out. The 2022 World Cup, it's here. The abuse and the labor violations and the occupational fatalities, they've happened already. But what can the labor movement learn from this? learn from Qatar and what lessons can we take from that as we prepare for future global tournaments? There are two lessons that I think we can take from the Stuart Cup. Increasingly, I think the narrative has been to put human rights at the center of sporting events. And I think the power of bringing sports and human rights increasingly, as the Stuart Cup showed, really would pave the way for more progress in human rights. So now you have a discourse or narrative that is more based on human rights criteria. There is a bidding criteria for countries who are willing or wanting to host mega sporting event that they need to really be assessed on certain human rights criteria. Looking forward that we believe that the, the framework that existed as a result of the World Cup is better in to promote and protect human rights within mega sporting event. Looking backward to this, it's very important as we say that we should not forget the abuses that happen. And while, yes, there's been progress, the mission is not accomplished. We're not there yet. More reforms are needed. Enforcement is important. Ending this country, a culture of impunity in the country is very important. We really hope the Qatari government is committed to carry on this process after this World Cup. Our call as a human rights organization is to set up compensation funds to look into these abuses and ensure that all those who suffered to make this World Cup happen receive this compensation. Maybe this could also be the format that should be adopted moving forward in any major sporting event is that when you fail to identify the human rights risk associated or resulting from a decision you made, then you need to at least to step in and fulfill your responsibility and compensate those who suffered. So I think one of the lessons learned is that while mega sporting events have the power to bring changes increasingly, so we just also make sure that these are implemented and enforced and that anyone who suffered during the course of these preparation receive a, a adequate remedy. Those are definitely important lessons we have to consider as we move forward. I want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with us for us a bit more about what happened at Qatar, what is still happening in Qatar, and the work that still needs to be done even after the World Cup is 
finish. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure to speak to you. If you want to learn more about the labor violations of Qatar, I highly recommend checking out Amnesty International's annual reality check reports that covered migrant workers' rights in Qatar. Now, while the 2022 FIFA World Cup is already underway, so is the preparation for the 2026 FIFA World Cup. We are joined now by Ashwini Sogbankar of the AFL-CIO's International Affairs team, as well as Valerie Alzega, the Deputy Director of Global Labor Justice. Ashwini has worked to protect labor justice both domestically and globally for over 20 years as part of the Unite Here, the International Commission for Labor Rights, and the Global Labor Justice International Labor Rights Forum. Valerie, similarly, has been part of this movement for over two decades, working as a labor and migrant rights campaigner and organizer as part of organizations such as SEIU, the Change to Win European Organizing Center, and Mehente. Thank you both for joining us today. As we know, as Qatar prepared to host the 2022 FIFA World Cup, various human rights and labor rights organizations brought attention to the inhumane working conditions laborers were forced to endure as they helped to bring this tournament to life. With this World Cup about to start, and with the 2026 FIFA World Cup four years away, how is the North American labor movement working to prevent the labor violations we saw in Qatar from occurring as they prepare for their own World Cup? in four years. As your question suggests, we did think that it was going to be better to try to prevent labor rights violations from happening than trying to deal with them on the other side with the kinds of campaigns around violations that we're seeing in Qatar right now. And so, Valerie, I hope that you'll talk about the Dignity 2026 coalition that labor in the U.S. has built with community groups, both local, domestic, and transnational. Yeah, I just want to say that we've been pretty hard at work, I think, for many months already, really building a pretty smart and well-organized network that led into the creation of a coalition called Dignity 26, which our idea really is to, again, have many voices and have our diversity be also our strength. So a lot of us come from labor. I come from Global Labor Justice International Labor Rights Forum, but we have not only the AFL-CIO and other really important international folks on the labor side, TUC and actually organizations of athletes as well. But we also have migrant rights organizations. We have community organizations that are going to be pushing and are pushing all of us to really think about community interest agreements and demands. And we also have the, actually the supporters, the fans, the organizations that really are also um, important to raise because they're from the beginning part of our, let's say, of our strength is to understand that we're all connected. We also have the Survivors, which is an organization that obviously is standing up for athletes' rights, especially after some of the scandals that have come out of like sexual harassment and abuse in the Greek's world. We're very diverse and we all have our own demands. And obviously we also have Human Rights Watch and organizations that are really centering human rights. So all of us have a lot of things to fight for. All of us are thinking about being preemptive. All of us are pushing in a dialogue with FIFA, really a framework, an enforceable framework with hope that can not be like after the fact, but just like Ashwini said, like how do we think about that framework from the get-go? How do we think about the prevention and the inclusion of a lot of the different groups that are actually excluded and don't have a voice? So all the stakeholders that, you know, we are and we represent, we are a strong coalition, we're growing and we're also going transnational. And I think 
that's a really great opportunity because we also hear each other's issues. Our goal is to stand with each other. Some of us may get our issues resolved, but that doesn't mean that we're not actually standing with everybody else because we want all our issues, all our problems, all our vulnerabilities really resolved and anticipated. That way we can actually fight for the right enforceability and the right framework. So I'll pass it over to Ashwini and maybe she can talk about that. Yeah. So as Valerie referenced, we come from a lot of different groups with a lot of different demands, but at the same time, we've coalesced around a set commonly articulated minimum demands as well. Over the last year or so, we've presented FIFA as well as the host cities with a set of minimum standards related to labor rights and to local community interests that we expect them to ensure throughout the, the lead up to the games as well as through the games themselves. And those certainly are a set of demands that will be familiar to labor movement folks. We expect a commitment to living wages. We expect strong protections and training around occupational health and safety. We expect real cooperative work with trade unions that will lead to binding collective bargaining agreements. We expect commitments related to local hiring. Happy to tell you more, but we're seeing some traction both from cities and from FIFA on commitments to those minimum standards. Yeah, for sure. And in Qatar, you will touch on this a bit, migrant workers, specifically they face worse working conditions. And while the circumstances are different in that country, migrant workers in North America are also more likely to be exploited, to be injured, or to die on the job. So how have migrant workers and immigrant workers been considered as our movement seeks protect workers in preparation for the 2026 World Cup? So we have a number of organizations in the coalition that deal both with migrant rights in, in the context of the U.S. in particular, the Centro de los Derechos del Migrante, as well as migration um, at, at a political, global, transnational level, the organization that Valerie comes from. So the analysis that we've arrived at is we understand that that migrant are going to be crucial in 2026, but we don't yet understand quite what the work is going to look like and what the interventions are that are necessary, because the work of 2026 is going to look very different than the work of 2022. The U.S., Mexico, and Canada won the right to host the 2026 World Cup based on the commitment that there would be no new stadium construction. So we're not going to see construction on the scale that was necessary in Qatar. So we don't know who the workers are and what they're going to be doing, but we have been very clear, including in, in communications with FIFA, that we expect real principles of the transparency of labor rights and human rights groups, access to migrant workers as core principles. We don't think it would be helpful for, for either FIFA or the host cities to think the issues of 2022 are going to be the ones that they need to prevent in 2026. There have been very effective campaigns, labor exploitation, trafficking, deaths of migrant workers on the job. We don't anticipate those types of problems, but we don't want FIFA patting itself on the back and saying, just because we prevented massive slave labor in 2026, off the hook now with respect to our commitments to human rights compliance. Valerie, your organization has really been in, in the thick of some of the campaigns that got there and hospitality workers. As you think about what 
2022 is trying to do and what we're collectively trying to do in 2026. What are you seeing with respect to migrant workers? And just going back to how are we centering migrant workers, being in the AFL-CIO, working with Global Labor Justice, really migrants are part of who we are. I don't want to say here are migrants and here are workers. We are the migrants yeah, of that course. are in hospitality with Unite here, in cleaning, security, and services in SEIU that, you know what I'm saying? So we're working with the federations, we're working with different trade unions in aviation, in transport, in stadiums and services. And I think that's important because I want to make sure that we understand that when we're talking about labor rights, we're talking about trade unions. And that really the best protection for workers is to have a union, is to have the right to build a union without repression, is to have those contracts. And this is not Qatar in that sense. We are going to have very strong unions in some of the most important cities in this country, making sure that their contracts are respected and that non non-union companies take any of these contracts. I think we're going to be more robust in how we protect some of this work. Now, obviously, there will also be non-union players, and we have to be very vigilant and well-organized. And that means we have to be an alliance and a coalition that really has an organizing structure that is in many different layers, that is not just organized in the workplace or at a city political level, but also in our communities, in our neighborhoods, that we understand who are the workers involved in a lot of these both formal and informal spaces that this World Cup is going to bring to us across the three countries. That's important, but let's also understand that this is an opportunity for also for us to organize um, labor in a better way, um, meaning in, in a coalition transnationally, in a very well-oiled partnership that allows us to really leverage and help each other, you know. Uh, why? Because the standards that are high in a place should also be something that other countries get to hopefully look into and expect from FIFA and from the companies and big corporations that are involved in these spaces. We want to make sure that the standards are not just in the global north. We also have a lot of work to do in Mexico to raise the wage gaps and the inequalities that, that we know exist in our country, in Mexico. That's an important part of the architecture we're building. It's union and non-union, but we really want to make sure that this is also a vehicle for us to stand up for each other and to raise that floor across our cities and across migrant and non-migrant union and non-union spaces, because that's the opportunity as well, both nationally and transnationally. No, definitely. I think even organizations were preparing for Qatar or as different labor organizations were addressing that, they were viewing it in a similar framework as this opportunity for the labor movement to make progress. You both touched on this a bit on how addressing this, you have to look at where these host cities will be located. Earlier this summer, FIFA announced the 16 different host cities across the three countries, Canada, Mexico, and the United States. So how has the work of the labor movement and how has the approach changed since these cities were announced? The origins of our campaign were about thing host city selection in the U.S., right? So there were 17 cities in the U.S. competing for originally 10 spots, though we ended up winning 11. And campaign was really was directed toward looking to the commitments that cities had made with respect to their human rights plans on paper. And now that we're in a different phase, it's not just about making those plans on paper real, but about trying to to improve the the basic commitments that, that cities have made. In in many cases, those human rights plans were quite weak. 
And so we continued to push for um, a real floor across all of those plans. And in some cities, that's going to be especially critical because they are either in right-to-work states or they're in states where state law preempts cities, including Atlanta, Houston, and Dallas, from trying to do anything good and decent, setting living wage policies. So we think it's going to be all the more critical that that FIFA step up and and make commitments itself to to preserve a floor. I think after the selection, we were happy to see city cities that had amazing plans and were really inclusive and engaging stakeholders. And we were actually not very happy about some cities that did not have very robust human rights plans who had not in, involved a lot of stakeholders. We have our work cut out, right, in cities where there is not a lot of labor rights or strong unions. We are going to see spaces where exploitation may happen. And so that is upon us to really, as labor movement and as a coalition, Dignity 2026, to really look at those cities where, you know, where we understand the standards, or we may be pushing nationally for standards. Those are spaces where we know maybe the infrastructure and the way in which cities and states run are not as robust as in others when it comes to respecting several labor rights and human rights. Uh, I do think that hopefully our dialogue with FIFA and our push to really have some standards are going to be actually having an influence on those cities that don't have you know, robust labor rights like Atlanta, for example. But at the same time, we know that that's going to be, that's going to be up to us to, just because we have a framework and let's see if we can get to an actual enforceable framework, that's what we want, then we need to enforce it. And so it would be those two things we need to think about at a city level. I don't know if that's helpful, but. Of uh, course, yeah. uh, No, like about our, obviously, whatever we make an agreement on, then we have to make sure it happens. (laughs) The good news is that I think at city levels, we have very strong players all across the country. And hopefully this will be also an opportunity to, again, raise issue when there is no trade unions or when there is repression, when workers are trying to raise their voice around any kind of violations or where athletes or supporters may have issues or where other kinds of rights are not being upheld. Yeah. No, that's definitely very helpful. And I think going off of that... And not just at the city level, but what are some of the challenges that make it difficult to enforce these labor standards as we prepare for global tournaments like this? I guess it's a long arc. Like we're organizing for four years from now. And I think that's a good challenge for us to always think about the end and going backwards and what are the stepping stones we need to really introduce and the organizing we need to do and the coordination we need to get used to. So by the time that happens, because I think everything happens before that moment, yeah. What we can win is way before that moment. And we always think about this benchmark as the point. But as you can see in Qatar, the struggle there has been going on for a long time. It's now maybe making like a lot of uh, media attention, but the struggle there and the organizing there has been going on for years. And so for me, I think the challenge is keeping all of us excited um, and also look at Qatar as the thing that we have to avoid. There has been some developments there that have been positive, but there is a lot of more work to be done there. And we know that. We have a chance to really show the world a different kind of moment 
a different kind of FIFA, a different kind of movement that is going to make everybody accountable in a different way. This is not Qatar. <laughs> We're well organized and people of color and workers and a lot of the different kind of groups that we are organizing around in this network. I want to be hopeful that, you know, although it's four years away, we know that we need to keep moving and we need to keep getting better organized and all those levels that I talked about. And transnational moment is also very hopeful because this is also a very exciting World Cup. I love football and to think about a Canadian, American, Mexican transnational World Cup is super exciting, both from the beautiful game side, but also from the capacity we may have to have solidarity with each other. These three countries are involved in free trade area agreements. They're involved in having to think about climate change. There, there is a lot of things that bring us together. Um, and this is a movement that can do that, that we can think about all the different things that cut across this campaign. It's very transversal, it's very inclusive, and I am very hopeful, very excited about what we can do. Instead of feeling, oh my God, we got to feel like empowered and really proactive because we have time to build the right thing. Yeah, I don't know what I could possibly add to that. That was, that was terrific, Valerie. Just to, to remind folks, the ways in which we have to be attentive to the timeline, even though the games are four years away. FIFA is signing contracts now. It's going to be figuring out which food service companies to, to use. It's going to be figuring out hotel packages. It's going to be finalizing agreements with security firms. And those, we'd like to really make sure as much as possible that unions are the heart of that conversation and that we're working with 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 local partners and national partners to make sure that those are, are good jobs looking toward 2026, but also leading up to 2026 and then looking beyond. It's It feels at times that the games are just a moment and that's very far away. Unless we can really adapt our thinking and approach it as organizers who have a plan for every single moment leading up to 2026, I think we're at risk of dropping the ball. Thank you both for elaborating on those challenges, considering all these obstacles. What can different advocacy groups and unions do to support this fight? We have LACLA, we have union members, we have non-union members, we have different activists, and we have chapters that are located in so many of these host cities. So what can they do to help prepare and prevent these labor violations that we've been discussing? So we've, we've seen our labor movement anchoring local coalitions already and starting out by doing the work of mapping in a bunch of these cities, of reassembling or assembling coalitions and figuring out what the work is, what the risks are, what the opportunities are in 2026. We think that work is going to have to wrap up and that we're going to have to see vibrant local coalitions in each of these cities if we're going to take advantage of this opportunity. Yes, I would say join us. Join our coalition of Dignidad 2026. I think the Latinx vote in terms of marching with our feet about what kind of Copa we want as Latinx communities, really, it's an important part. I think this is our game. This is our game. This is culturally a lot of us that come from, that are migrants and Latinx uh, folks. This is our game and we should make it a game that is ours, that we reclaim as a community of people that want the best Copa. We know a lot of us are very saddened by the fact that corporations and it's been co-opted. This Copa is not representing what a lot of us would have wanted to represent. And so I, I would love to see more organizations join our coalition because I think it's going to be an important part to be as broad and as 
as inclusive and to, to make sure everybody knows FIFA and all the corporations come in, you're going to have to play fair. This is a Copa that is going to be fair. It's going to be fair on the ground and it's going to be fair in the field. But we're going to make that happen and we're going to be those referees making sure that no violations happen. As we move forward, hopefully our coalition will be opening and expanding. And when it comes down to receiving this COP, hopefully we'll be one of those big organizations on the ground, making sure that we're visible and united. The World Cup, it's called the World Cup for a reason. You know that the 2026 World Cup, it's the first with 48 teams. It'll be the largest tournament to date. And yes, you're going to have so many stakeholders involved and we're going to want to hear from those voices. It is a beautiful game, but these tournaments don't happen out of thin air. It's important that we sit down and that we discuss the process and making sure that even though we're fans of soccer, we're fans of football, that we also think about our work to protect workers. So I want to thank you guys both so much for speaking with me. Thanks for inviting us. We're excited and hopefully we'll meet again and make sure that everybody that makes this World Cup happen is visible and celebrated with good jobs and good inclusive benefits. Thank you again to all of our guests, May, Ashwini, and Valerie, for taking the time to speak with us about the labor landscape for both the 2022 FIFA World Cup of Qatar and the 2026 FIFA World Cup that will be held in Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Every episode, we leave our listeners with a moraleja, and our discussion today only emphasizes that employers in every industry or field, even global sporting events, have the ability to abuse or violate their workers' rights. Learning about what happened in Qatar and the actions taking place now in North America only reminds Remind us that unions and labor rights are the ultimate protection for workers. We cannot forget that behind every piece of entertainment are the hundreds of workers that make it possible. Thank you for listening to El Desvio, Many Roads, One Destination. Our podcast explores the many ways that we activists and trade unionists try to get to the destination of social and economic justice. Lakla's El Desvio podcast is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, the voice of working people. To learn more about issues that affect workers, visit laborradionetwork.org. This podcast was made possible by the support of the AFL-CIO and the Si Podemos Fund, LACLA's national C4 organization.